It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. This episode of the Gabfest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for November 7th, 2019, the one year from this week edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura here in Washington, D.C. Joining me visually but not physically is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who I'm looking at over over Skype. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. From Yale. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be here. And then joining me, not visually, but telephonically, is John Dickerson of CBS 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. I um, uh, Is it telephonically? With I don't know. Oh, whatever. Come on. Right. Come on. Well, I'm God. just, no, it's interesting. Is just, it radio? Uh, is it a telephone? Oh, my God. It's, it's magic. Not a telephone. I can't even believe it. Stop. I understand it's not telephonic. I'm oh, just my saying. God. You're, you're being pedantic already. On today's GabFest, election results in Kentucky and Virginia emboldened Democrats. And then there are discouraging poll results in swing states for Democratic presidential candidates. Then impeachment barrels forward. What happened this week? What is about to happen? And then President Trump withdraws the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. Is that catastrophic or merely terrible? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. One year from this week, we will have elected a new president or possibly the same president. And this week, we saw the last major elections before 2020 in a bunch of states that weirdly have off-year elections, which are always cute but confusing because you're like, it's an odd year. Why is there an election? but it's still nice to have. And then we also saw some very interesting, and if you're a Democrat, alarming poll results for Democratic primary challenges. So let's start with um, with the 2019 results. John, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the cradle of the Republic, the cradle, in fact, of John Dickerson, Democrats took control of the state Senate and the state House. Um, why is that important? Why is it overdue? Is it important and overdue? Well, I think it's imp- uh, it's important. Well, it's for the first time in fifty years. So that's when any when any time anything happens for the first time in fifty years, you should take note of it. Basically, most people would say what this does is it ends the charade that Virginia is not a blue state. You know, it went from being red to purple to blue, and so they're saying that it's that it's um, now a blue state. And that I don't know what I think about that debate. That's fine. You can have that debate. The most interesting thing, it seems to me, about Virginia, the two most important results are, first of all, that the that Republicans did not win back the seats that they lost in 2017 when Democrats um, had strong showings in Republican areas. And then Democrats won in additional areas to take control over um, the two state houses. You now have the two state houses and the governorship all in the same party, which means there's going to be a series of of legislation passed in Virginia on um, 
on gun control uh, in particular, that'll be um, very interesting to watch. Why is that interesting? Because of the second thing. So the first point is Democrats are showing strength, Republicans' weakness in the exurbs, the areas, out suburbs and outside. And that's something we'll talk a lot about because it was also strong for Democrats in Kentucky. And the argument is that if it's been strong consistently in 2018 and 2019, that's bad for Donald Trump. But the second thing that's important in Virginia is it's the home of the NRA. The forces of gun control, gun safety, whatever you want to call it, basically now have beaten the NRA in their own backyard. That will mean a lot for gun legislation in Virginia and for the um, for for the Everytown organization. It, it's a model for inroads they might be able to make in other states. Emily, quickly, let's also hit the, I think, probably the other big state for Democrats this week was Kentucky, where a Democrat in a, in a very red state beat the extremely hated incumbent governor, Matt Bevin, in a state where President Trump campaigned and tried to tie the Democrat, Andy Bashir to impeachment. Trump had won the state by 30. Republicans won every single other statewide office uh, that was up. Is Bevin's loss a warning for Trump or not really? Is it just like a particular set of circumstances with an extremely bad and hated incumbent? I think more of the latter. You know, I wonder if people think differently about the governor in some circumstances than the sort of normal party polarized politics that we have. You know, I'm thinking of the fact that a Democrat is governor in Kansas or a Republican is governor in Massachusetts. There's a way in which that administrative job can, I think, seems a little less political than some other positions. And I mostly just think that, yeah, what you said, there was an extremely unpopular incumbent. It's true that President Trump couldn't save him, but he had been his own worst enemy. It's a great question, but the what I think will be interesting is if you match the suburban and exurban results in Kentucky with what happened in Virginia and then what happened in the same areas with the same kind of voters in 18, whether it's demonstrably true that that will all play out the same way in 2020, it suggests enough data points that it puts high and heavy uncertainty in the air for Republican senators who are running in 2020 in places that where they're, they're going to depend. I'm thinking of people like Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, running in states where they need those votes. And if Donald Trump and the Republican Party of Donald Trump has consistently been showing weaknesses in those areas, again, whether it actually plays out that way in 2020, I think it's going to make some nervousness and change perhaps some calculations over the next year uh, as Republicans worry about becoming a party that is just defined by the Trump coalition, which is essentially non-college whites, uh, evangelicals, and, and rural voters. And that nervousness, again, whether it's true or not, will create some some uh, potential for some more destabilizing action among Republicans, uh, possibly. Is it, actually, I had a question about that. John, is John Cornyn yeah. up for election in yes. yeah. 2020? Yeah, I mean, that's when I look at what John Cornyn is doing, which is to not be as full-throated around impeachment as you nearly would expect, given that he's a number two Republican in the Senate. He's a Texas Republican. I, I That, to me, is a signal he is very worried that that he... You know, he could face something serious. Again, these are these linkages. We should all, you know, these are drawn in uh, pencil and very lightly. But but I would also link it to what what I went on at some length about with Mitch McConnell the other uh, a couple of weeks ago when he was asked um, about the uh, conversation the president said he had with McConnell and McConnell basically threw the president under the bus. I think you can if you start to see a number of these things, you see some. Um, Again, whether the distancing from the president is even possible, I think that's quite hard to do for anybody. But but just the more uncertainty and destabilization there is in the world added to the existing highly destabilizing behavior of the president and the people who are defending him, it just adds more kind of frenetic possibilities in an already pretty frantic political world. Um, as everybody's tr- trying to gauge what the politics are going to look like uh, on election day a year from now, that puts so much uncertainty in the in the system 
for Republicans to see this weakness repeated in these areas that used to be part of their coalition. And yet, if you are Cory Gardner or Susan Collins or even John Cornyn, aren't you kind of caught in a vice? Like, you can try mm-hmm. to put some distance between you and the, um, you know, I would say most like crazy tuned defenders of Trump, like Mark Meadows, who just seem to be saying, I mean, and Lindsey Graham, like, I am in lockstep with the president no matter what he says, I'm going in that direction. They're stepping back from that. But in the end, like, there will presumably be an impeachment trial in the Senate. And it's very hard to imagine them currently voting to remove from office President Trump. Now, I do think that could change. I mean, we saw public approval of President Nixon drastically move downward during the public hearings in Watergate. But I just feel like from the vantage point of right now, I'm not sure that this is like the either um, – angel or devil of being a Trump supporter or a a Republican senator in the Trump era, you may be trying to maintain some kind of semblance of separation. But how far is that really going to get you? Whether a candidate, any candidate can separate themselves in a nationalized election, and we have them even in off years, so of course we're going to have one in 2020, is I, I think basically most people have been in the game say you can't do it. You can't get out from under a president. However, candidates in fear of not being reelected tend to do things, you know, they throw Hail Mary passes. And, you know, Cory Gardner in Colorado, which is basically a one-third, one-third state, so Democrat, Independent, Republican split the the state in thirds. John Hickenlooper, who he's running against, the former governor and mayor of Denver, is a very popular fellow in the state. So, Cory Gardner, you could imagine, again— if, even if you stipulate that, that that you can't get out from under a president, may still try. And why does that matter? Well, that's one guy in one state. Well, first of all, Colorado is a battleground state. Second of all, as we know from this president, when a, when one person does thing something that that he doesn't like, he goes after them. So then it becomes you could imagine that growing into something more because then he's attacking a, a Republican. So what's Mitch McConnell say about that? And so on and so forth. So. Um, it, it's 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 just, right. as I say, a possibility for destabilization. I want to touch, Emily, on what is potentially the most alarming aspect of the vote on Tuesday, which is as of Wednesday, I actually didn't look this morning. There was, there was intimations, hints, even open statements from Republican legislators in Kentucky that they might not accept the results of that gubernatorial election. And there is a the one of the leaders in the Republican House is trying to confect this into a contested election, which it was, you know, about 5,000 votes separating the the uh, Democrat and the Republican. Uh, and this stunning kind of possibility that the, how, the, the Kentucky legislature, which is dominated by Republicans, might try to overturn the popular vote. I actually don't think this will succeed for a couple, of, even if they make a real push at it, which there's no sign they're going to. One is Bevin has been a lousy governor, even for Republicans. He's made them more unpopular. He's been unpopular himself. So why keep him in there? Second, it is actually fun to have a Democratic, a governor of the rival party in some ways, especially if you have a majority in the legislature, you can really mess with them and score points off of that person. And that that's a kind of good way to spend a couple of years sometimes. So it's not it's not that bad to be in the out party if you have the majority in the legislature. But also, I don't think it's effective to cheat in elections after the fact. I think it's very effective to suppress the votes in advance when it can be dressed up as some kind of principle of voter integrity. But after the fact, when the votes are already counted, the numbers are there, it is not – I think it's going to look a lot like cheating if they try to push this through. <laughs> yeah, it would in fact be cheating and like deeply alarming if this happened. You know, I will just note, Kentucky already does one thing to suppress the vote, which is to close the polls at 6 p.m. You know, I I think that you're right. This isn't going to go anywhere. But the fact that it's even being discussed, it's just these signs we're getting from states. I mean, we've gotten them also from Wisconsin. And, of course, like the queen of this is North Carolina, where if you don't like the way the game uh, is being played, you just like throw the board up into the air and uh, all the pieces fall in some other place. You just change the rules. You know, I don't know enough about Kentucky law to know how the governor's powers are distributed and who decides. But you could really imagine this legislature trying to clip the wings of this new Democrat coming in in much the way that the North Carolina Republican dominated legislature has has done that for Roy Cooper, the governor there. Let us turn 
my friends, to the polls for the presidential campaign. So from one kind of poll to another kind of poll, there was a really interesting poll in the New York Times of swing states, John, this week, looking at how various Democratic presidential candidates might perform against President Trump in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Interesting that Arizona is a very legit swing state in a way that Ohio, for example, doesn't seem to be anymore. Why were Democrats so agitated by the results of this poll? And is it is this one poll significant? It's, uh, let's see, how to pack. Okay, so why were they agitated? Well, they were agitated because Biden's only up by a couple of points over Trump in these six states. Let's see, Sanders was up a little bit and, and Warren was down. So I think there was agitation for two reasons. One, Biden up wasn't up by as much as, he, as people thought. Warren was down. And three, and this is the bigger point, I think, is a lot of people think, stop looking at and thinking about the election in that way. Stop take, basically boiling the entire election down to six states full of larger shares of white working class voters because that's not what the electorate is about and implicit in even doing the poll among some democrats is the idea that that or or they would argue that the times poll kind of has its thumb on the scale in terms of this larger argument about whether the democratic party needs to quote unquote moderate to go for the kinds of voters in those six states or go for the kind of um, voters that might have even been part of the Trump coalition in those six states or whether the Democratic Party by being true to its principles and and a kind of more liberal vision can blow through turnout models, change the shape of the electorate in those six states and other places with a kind of Warren or Sanders type candidate. I have a question about the idea of how significant this poll is a year out. Nate Cohn, right. <laughs> who's the Times reporter who did the poll and was talking about it, said, hey, a year out is basically just as good as right before the election. And then Nate Silver, yeah. the guru of 538, said polls a year out, like, eh, not not that um, not that reality-based, not that important. What's the answer here? I, first of all, the answer is the polling gurus need to get different first names. It's too confusing to have both Nate Cohn and Nate Silver be named Nate. I think it it's, might be a little a late for one of them to actually. Uh, well, I feel like name, Nate Cohn. Nate Cohn has has. I, I don't know Nate Cohn. I've met Nate Silver a couple of times. Nate Cohn is like definitely riding on the coattails of Nate Silver. He's like, oh, where's the what's the hot polling name? It's Nate. I'm gonna. I'm going to glom onto that. And the Times hired him. I don't think that his parents would appreciate really? Are that. Are you sure? Are no, you I don't think okay. so. Uh, I want to know the answer to this. John, uh, what am I supposed to make of these polls year out, matter, don't matter? There's a general principle, and then I don't know. I didn't see what um, Nate Silver of 538 said. Um, I did read in the Times the idea, the statement that I ha- and I have a note here to go check it out and see if that's in fact true or if there's like some important caveat. But yeah, the 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 article that went along with the polling said that on average in the last three three cycles, head to head polls a year ahead of the election have been as close to the final result as those taken the day before uh, the final result. Um, I just saw Nate Silver because- just say like in a tweet, you know what? Polls a year out, eh. But I, yeah. I'm not sure. I, anyway. Well, d- First of all, there aren't polls taken the day before, I don't think, right? Because Not the day before, be polls, whatever. Right, polls released the day before. But anyway, the broader, more important point is so much changes and happens you can't i mean you can say you can say that that's been what the result in the past has been but if there's an instance in which past performance does not predict future results in this current political environment i think that would be uh, wise uh, to keep in mind in that in that context but i do think the idea that if the electoral college is still in play uh, in our presidential elections then it is important to look at the at the states that will that will matter with respect to the electoral college so i think looking at these six states um, makes sense. And then we should probably turn to this idea of what's the actual electorate going to look like and then who is best set up to make the case with that electorate. I thought what was the most interesting thing in Nate Cohn's piece accompanying this story about his poll was noting what kind of people seem to be supporting Biden but not Warren or Warren but not Biden. Yeah. And and that you have the category. So, for example, there's Sanders seems to pick up a bunch of young voters when you poll who don't want to then vote for Warren or Biden. And Biden seems to pick up uh, like a lot of people who don't seem to want to vote for a woman, for example. There seems to be a lot of just out and out cold stone 
sexism yeah. in the electorate, which was horrifying to read it about. It was like 40% of the people. The There's 6% of the electorate is Biden, not Warren, and 40% of them was uh, answering yes to questions that made them seem like sexist. Questions about the, the likability of Warren and female candidates in general. But, and I've said this before, but this is basically votes in the Democratic primaries and caucuses are going to be about punditry about what your neighbor thinks. So, you know, Democrats are are by wide majorities fine with having a woman president, but they don't think that their fellow Democrats are fine with having a woman president, which means when they vote, are they casting a vote for the person they think should have, do the job? Or are they doing, you know, casting the vote for the person they think will have the best jo- chance in the general election because of people's predispositions about women? And that's, oh, what a mess that is in terms of trying to sort that out. Good luck with that. John, what do you make of the fact that, so this poll of swing states uh, included these six states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. It did not include Georgia, Texas, and Ohio, which are, and Iowa. So I think the presumption being that Ohio and Iowa are now basically Republican states, and it's going to be, they're not really swing states. And that, but also there's this, at least conversation that I hear among people that Georgia and Texas are potentially in play, and Arizona is certainly in play. It's very yeah. cold. Do you- I guess it means it's 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 making some bets on two things. One is that basically the shape of the electorate in Iowa and Ohio is just Democrats are never going to do well enough to reach far enough into the white working class voters in those states or white rural voters in Iowa to beat. Also, you've got you know you've got a Senate race in Iowa that'll uh, with an incumbent Republican that'll tweak things for the for the. Democrats. And so, uh, although, by the way, we should note, but just as a farm state, here's, and we should talk about this. Uh, if you look inside the Republican coalition, it seems to me Democrats would have some opportunities. Let's talk about rural voters for a moment. Bankruptcies for farms are going to be as high as they've ever been in 2019. The bailout to the farmers is now bigger net-net than the bailout of the car companies under the Obama administration because of the, the fight with China and the tariff battles with with other countries. If you were a compelling candidate um, who could make the case to uh, rural voters and you believed, and again, we're, there, are some, there are some things implicit in what I'm saying that some people don't believe because some people believe these voters are gone, that it's all about identity, not economic and therefore why should a Democrat spend a lot of time doing that? But back to your basic point, David, the Republican coalition has those two states and the Democratic coalition doesn't have it enough in Georgia and Texas that this cycle they'll be able to make inroads. If you believe in a Warren kind of candidacy, a pure base, rile the base up, candidacy, which is essentially what Trump is running on the Republican side, you could try to make a case for Georgia and Texas. But the problem is if you run heavy towards turning out the liberal coalition in those states, you would weaken your ability. So goes the theory in the six states that are that are closest. And that's another reason they picked these six that have a more mixed um, electorate as the time sees it. And most people see it. Emily, last question on this topic. So John Chait in New York Magazine some subsection of New York Magazine, I can't remember which one, concludes that the leftward tilt of the Democratic candidates is turning out to be a disaster, that they've lost touch with median voters, they desperately need to get back to the center before they find themselves with an unelectable candidate. Is it the case that that Warren and Sanders are essentially giving themselves iron crosses, they've hung iron crosses around their neck for the general election? I find myself wishing that Warren had not come up with a Medicare for all tax plan, like really wish that she had just said, you know, it'll be magic, which is what Republicans say all the time about their plans. It's always like, oh, it'll be magic, economic growth, magic. Do you think that she'll she'll be able to run away from that? Or is it really something that is going to drag her? I mean, people move to the the ideological edge of their parties and primaries, right? Republicans move to the right, Democrats move to the left. The idea is then you tack back to the center in the general election. There's plenty of time. I do wonder about what these candidates are thinking in terms of not sticking with the most popular positions. Now, obviously, Warren wants to be able to attract Bernie Sanders voters and you know, I with zero reporting, you could imagine that she is trying to make sure that if and when Sanders drops out, he full-throatedly endorses her, and so she becomes the candidate of the full left. I also think she believes in Medicare for all. 
And yet there is so much that these Democratic candidates could do for health care or, for example, on immigration with a path to citizenship that is broadly popular that one wonders whether it would be politically wiser to stick to those positions. I mean, this is a question that people like Matt Iglesias at Fox have been asking for months. And when they, you know, put up the poll numbers every time, it looks pretty persuasive to me as just a matter of pragmatic politics. What looks persuasive? That's sticking with broadly popular positions that are more centrist and that actually could become law would be smarter. Like, we are not going to immediately have Medicare for all. So we're having... They're taking Warren and Sanders, particularly Warren, are taking a big political risk for something that doesn't seem particularly reality based. And so then does it is it really necessary? Right. Well, so this is, as you quite rightly pointed out, this is always the problem with primaries. It's why people have uh, think that primaries are part of the reason our politics are so messed up, because everybody has to get into a very not only far left, but also detached debate as a kind of way to signal to their electorates that they are more pure than the next person. To your point, Emily, about what the environment's going to look like a year from now, let's imagine a Democrat wins. Okay, so Democrat wins. If they win, it will have been on a restoration ticket, which is to say, well, we're going to fix things post-Donald Trump. That gives you a huge to-do list just to start the, the day, okay? Before you get to Medicare for All, you've got a lot of stuff to do to restore. And by the way, most of it's going to be overseas, and some large portion of it's going to be secret. So there's that. Second of all, the the intervening election over the year, the next year, is going to be scorched earth. So how you're going to get this through a Medicare for All through Congress, even through trying to use reconciliation after that year— seems more unlikely than it even would be today. As you quite rightly said, Emily, you go to the you go to the left or you go to the left or the right in your primaries and come back to the middle, but that also depends on a, a, a you know politics has changed a little bit in terms of the public square when you can make that case that you're not exactly the person you ran in the primaries as being. It's harder to do that now. Secondly, which of these candidates has the facility and ability to make that case or do they keep stepping on their, you know, their or are their shoes tied together? And so that that's one question. Can they even get back to that position? And then the question is, what do you guys think that position looks like in the general election for a Democrat to to either undermine the president's coalition or to build success in areas like the suburbs um, where you've seen some of these opportunities for Democrats? All right. I cannot let this segment pass, John, without noting what is surely the most important electoral result from Tuesday. <laughs> surprising result out of New Haven, Connecticut, which just elected a 19-year-old. A 19-year-old is one of its alders. And this 19-year-old won a staggering 90% of the vote. What do you make oh of the gosh, overwhelming mandate won by Eli Sabin, <laughs> whose mother is noted political commentator Emily Bazelon? Just how significant do you feel this victory is for the future of the republic? Well, fortunately, for for all those people who feel uh, jittery about the state of the future and the state of the republic, really about whether there is verifiable truth in these troubled times that we live in now, I think not just the people in the uh, in the quiet suburbs of New Haven and the urban centers of that city, but also really across the country and the world can find themselves uh sleeping easier now as a result of that uh, outcome. Emily Mazeltov, congratulations <laughs> on your son's victory. Thank you. My son is now in our city council, uh, so it's going to be really interesting to watch. Eli is so excited and thrilled. We, GapFest listeners, have our annual conundrum show coming up live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California on December 18th and have a very exciting announcement, which we have a great guest. As you know, every year we try to get a very wise, philosophical-minded person to help us solve Conundra for you. This year, no different. We have an amazing guest. Adam Savage of Mythbusters is going to join us at the Fox Theater on December 18th. No one has done a keener analysis of the true questions Americans fret about, about the real myths and blowing up the real myths. He's so funny and smart and interesting, and I'm so excited he's going to join us. So you can still get tickets for that show at slate.com slash live to see us tackle conundrums with Adam Savage. Again, slate.com slash live, December 18th in Oakland. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Public hearings on impeachment are expected to begin on Wednesday in front of the House Intelligence Committee featuring witnesses who have already testified behind closed doors. Impeachment, it seems to me, is circling around two main tracks. First track is, are Democrats moving fast enough and with enough clarity to maintain and even build public support for the process and harm the president, undermine the president, undermine Republicans, even if they don't break the Republican firewall and actually remove him from office? Second, there is this kind of process question, which is what is going to happen in this massive showdown between legislature and presidency over testimony, tax return, privileges, witnesses, and how is the judicial branch going to referee that, if at all? John, let's start with the substance of the week. So there's always a ton of impeachment news these days. Some of the news this week was that Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU who had been engaged in the shadow foreign policy along with Rudy Giuliani, conceded he reversed himself. He essentially said, I misled Congress earlier when I said I did not uh, talk about a quid pro quo, but there was a quid pro quo whereby we were telling the Ukrainians they had to launch this investigation of the Bidens in order to free up the military aid that Congress had appropriated. So that's a that was a big deal. There was this talk of a press conference that Bill Barr did not hold. There, um, On Thursday, as we're taping, uh, one of Mike Pence's key aides is testifying. What, what in your mind, are the key substantive things that happened with impeachment this week? I think Sondland was the biggest news because Sondland said he told Ukrainian officials that military aid was tied to their commitment to the president. Sondland, as you'll remember, had plenty of conversations with the president about this. Adam Schiff uh, scheduled, I think, also the first impeachment hearing, which is on the 15th of November. I think what what is still at issue and then Republicans are 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 trying to close ranks. The president has hired some people to help him with his impeachment defense. What is still at issue and is very hard to put a finger on is whether the argument is that the president did not try to use his job to influence the government of Ukraine to look into Joe Biden that he didn't do it at all, or that he did it, but it's not impeachable. There's also a third third kind of nutty thing, which is he did it, but because the because Ukraine didn't launch the investigation into Biden, it doesn't matter, which um, Emily will tell me if this is right or wrong, but um, that's not the way the law works. And also in Nixon's case, uh, some of the things that drove him for office never came to pass. It's um, risible, and, that particular yeah. defense. Right. Um, one lawyer said the only way you can claim that defense is if what you are uh, originally plotting to do is actually impossible. So build a ray gun in your uh, backyard that uses marshmallows and golf balls uh, as its primary source of energy. Wait, that's impossible? To shoot down your neighbor. That... <laughs> God uh, damn it. But was here's... about to do that this afternoon. <laughs> right, Come <exactly>. on. <laughs> but I think, John, the thing that makes me so despondent about all of this is that the record of the Trump presidency seems to be that the partisan divide is so strong that you will, he'll get away with this and that people people's memories are so short and they there are so many outrages that happen every week in this presidency that people are like can't even believe i mean i can't even you know what michael cohen's testimony i mean every every month there's something which is like wow this is really the breaking point this is shocking no one will accept this like look look what has been conceded on the record that he's now done and it doesn't stick and he and he so has lowered standards so much and he has thrown so much right. chaff out there and there's so much confusion and so much willingness to accept misbehavior on his part by his supporters that people are frustrated and they are disillusioned and disengaged and i and i sorry just to pile on this point one last point last week we were talking about oh there's going to be mass protest or where is the mass protest why is there not mass protest that was the su- <laughs> yeah. that was the subject of last week we're just 6 days later and there's been that that whole topic is gone. The idea that mass protests well, would come out of this is gone. It could come back. I don't know. Well, I don't know. People's, uh, but I think people well, are people uh, have moved into a state of disillusion and inaction well, because they're I, so frustrated because the I, president has done such a good job of destroying the integrity of the political system and and making people doubt doubt truth and and doubt whether they can get anything done. And and so well, I, but David, I think don't you, you have to sort- don't you think? 
there's more public support for impeachment. It's just that there's also this hardcore of Trump supporters who are not budging. I think you have to sort things into their boxes here a little bit. So first of all, Democrats in the elections that just took place, everything I read suggests that actually um, one of the challenges for Republicans is that Donald Trump seems to be an incredible motivator and turnout mechanism for Democratic voters. If the best turnout mechanism for your base is the president, then it allows candidates to spend some time reaching into into parts uh, of the electorate that are not a part of their base. I think the impeachment process, to the extent that it goes forward, um, and you are a Republican senator who has to vote, do I think it's going to lead to the president's impeachment? I think everything you have said and everything we've seen and the tribal reaction we've seen um, uh, to run down people of good standing in order to defend the president whose be- whose behavior, whether it's impeachable or not, certainly breaks many of the standards that a lot of the politicians have spent their careers saying must be maintained or will lead to the uh, destruction of American life and culture. So I think the fact that people have held tight for partisan reasons, you have to bet on that. So I don't think there's anything that suggests that the Senate is going to vote to remove him. But the process going forward, I think, does put, again, some of those particularly senators who are up for re-election and each of them in a position where they have to, if they do say, look, this is bad but not impeachable, then they do at some point have to answer, okay, but you, 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 since you admit that it happened but it's not impeachable, you're also saying it's okay that the president lied and that's bad but not impeachable. I think to just have people on the record, that's a useful thing to happen. Where and how it leads, we don't know, but it's good to have people on the record about what we what the standards are and whether this president has exceeded them or fallen below them. I just want to say that I hold open a window for Republican senators shifting positions in light of these public hearings. Public hearings mattered a lot in Watergate, and I just want to keep the possibility open that they could matter again, even though we live in a much more polarized time, both in our politics and in our media. Emily, let's talk about some of these process questions, which I know you've thought about. You have a piece in the Times about it. There's a huge question about whether the House is going to be able to compel people associated with the president, his closest aides, to testify or to supply any key documents. For the moment, they seem to be saying, forget it, we're not going to bother, we're not going to go through the legal process to try to get this, even though maybe we have the right to get it, just because it will take too long. Where do you see this showdown going? Or maybe there'll be no showdown. So, no. Well, yeah, actually. So I think that the Democrats are playing it smart right now. And what I mean by that is that you're right. Congress has this right to investigate. It has this power. It's had it since the founding. Since the Nixon era, presidents have been increasingly asserting what's called executive privilege more boldly over more material. Executive privilege just means there's supposed to be some private zone of confidential communications in the White House for the president so he can communicate with candor with his aides. Like, that makes sense. We don't know how far that zone extends. There is actually very little uh, court precedent from this. The Supreme Court has actually never had a case in which it had to decide between the power of Congress to subpoena witnesses and evidence and the president right to claim executive privilege. They just we just don't know the answer. What has been remarkable, although not really surprising, about the Trump administration is they are claiming absolute immunity for any witness who doesn't want to testify. So it's not like we want to litigate whether a specific uh set of material or set of questions are covered by executive privilege. It's Don McGahn, former White House counsel, doesn't even need to show up. That litigation is all happening outside of the parameters of the impeachment inquiry because I think Adam Schiff and whoever else is making these decisions for the Democrats is seeing that litigation take a long time and is saying, no, we're not going to get dragged into long court battles. And so 
there was this interesting detail that John helpfully noted for me this week where we had a lawsuit from this guy, Charles Kupperman, who's a John Bolton aide, has the same lawyer as John Bolton. And he had taken it upon himself to go to court himself and say, I'm caught between these two competing demands. Congress is telling me to show up and the president is telling me not to and I don't know what to do and I'm suing both of them. And the Congress withdrew the subpoena of Kupperman this week saying basically like, you don't want to come. This is going to take too long. We're not getting um, waylaid by this. And you can see that as like Congress folding its tent. But given just the time parameters of this kind of litigation, I think it was the right call. And so I think you're right. We may basically avoid a showdown in the courts. And what Congress is counting on and what is working really well so far is that if you have a willing witness, it's not at all clear that executive privilege is a sword that Trump can wield. And so as long as the people who are career professionals and Trump appointees like Gordon Sondland want to keep coming up and giving this damning testimony against the president, I think that Congress is going to forego the witnesses who don't want to come. The most interesting witness we don't know the answer to so far is John Bolton himself. He's had a lot of, obviously, direct communication with Trump. He is in the middle of this. One could imagine that some of the leaks involving the damning evidence against Trump relate to Bolton and his people, but we just don't know whether he's going to comply with the subpoena yet. Emily, can we just um, uh, put to bed this funny notion, and as you say, it's laughable, but man, it's getting a lot of people who are in jobs of preventing uh, the president making this argument. The argument that, well, yes, he was he was trying to influence Ukraine, but since they didn't they weren't influenced, it's not um, wrong. We've already talked about why that's not. But um, in law, the reason that's not the case, God. the reason we don't want that to be the case is because we don't want to incentivize people to make attempts. Uh, is that correct, Emily Bazelon? Yes, it is, John Dickerson. <laughs> attempted murder is its own crime. And we want attempted murder to be a crime because we don't want you to be able to try to kill someone and fail for reasons that were outside right. of your control, like you're a really bad shot or whatever. And that is still a crime, and we want to be able to do it. Yeah, the shoe, it. Bomber, shoe bomber is spending and, life in prison. <laughs> Last time I checked. um, When you think about it, it's kind of an odd distinction because from the point of view, if you really think someone tried to kill someone and they didn't succeed, like, who cares? They're just as culpable. But we do make that distinction. I mean, think about drunk driving. If you get caught driving drunk but you don't hurt someone, that is a lesser charge, a lesser penalty than if you hurt someone. But you're taking the same risk in both situations. That is a a really good question. Wait, philosophically, do – are you mm-hmm. I've got I've got another one. No, but do you guys think do you guys think <laughs> that the attempt that attempting something and failing is as bad as attempting and succeeding? Like for example, if you wanted to hire, you could be arrested for trying to hire a contract killer and failing because the contract killer actually is a, you know, an FBI informant and so it never happens. But there are all sorts of steps even after you've hired your contract killer where you could have said to your contract killer, "You know what? I regret that. Let's not do that." And so actually you would have had a chance to stop it. So maybe like doing things which you don't fully follow through on, it does seem like you you shouldn't be punished as much for, as things you fully follow through on. Drunk driving is an interesting case because so, you're, it's kind of out of your control whether you fully follow through on it. Let mm-hmm. me ask let me ask you this question, Emily, which is that does the would the sentencing change uh, if you, as the attempted murderer or attempted bank robber, had a special community position? that you were running a foul of. So if you were a policeman and you tried to kill a relative. A position um, of n- trust and authority in the government, John? <laughs> there you go. Would that uh, change the sentencing? And then if you were to come up with a scale of people who have a special stewardship and trust in the government, where would you rank the president on uh, maintaining <laughs> that trust in that ranking? <laughs> Oh, I would rank the president high since he is our (laughs) (laughs) commander in chief. And yeah, we definitely have laws where if you're in the government and you abuse your position of trust, that is its own crime. I mean, this is just I don't know what to say. Like there's a way in which one of the most revealing parts of all of this are the lengths The arguments that um, people who are defending Trump are willing to make, the lengths to which they are willing to go. And I think, obviously, that's the broader point you're making. And, you know, David's right. It is succeeding to a dismaying degree. Like, even if it doesn't persuade most of the country, it is enough for lots of people who just want to look past this conduct. 
And some people say to even raise the questions that people are using in bad faith to defend the president is to give them um, energy. And I'm sympathetic to that uh, because I've been you know, saying for ever that um, fact-checking gives energy to the underlying lie, even if you think you're doing your, your right duty. But I do think in this case, one of the things at issue with any president, and this one in particular, is whether the, the lengths to which people will go to defend you because the presidency is an honored post in, the, in, in American life, and we should all, in some very vague sense, rush to the defense of a president. Obviously, a, a, a job created with fear of monarchy wouldn't want that as its single qualification. But, but, but I'm saying there is a rallying around a president that is a part of the tradition. And therefore, when you do something as a president, knowing that rallying effect takes place, you are messing with a public trust here. So it's, there is, in these defenses, and the extremity of the defenses, you're, it's actually also part, it seems to me, of the case. Because when you're a president, you, your actions are not cabined by the thing you did on a single phone call. They have all of these other effects, which is a part of your job in your office. And all of those effects are built into the office. So you need to think about it quite broadly, it seems to me. It doesn't mean that, the, the, that you need to impeach or that you need to convict. But it, it, does, it means that it's much more than a single phone call. And it includes, too, the, the, the crazy things people may say in your defense that have no basis in the, in the human world that we exist in uh, and breathe in today. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. So if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member of Slate Plus today. All you Gen Z Slate Plus members, all you boomer slate plus members all you gen y slate plus members and even all you uh not millennial those are gen y all the gen xers like me and john and emily we're going to talk about okay boomer so uh you're gonna (laughs) you're gonna get a we're gonna start some generational warfare and you get that as your bonus segment today president announced that the united states will withdraw from the paris climate accord official announcement This is the 2015 global agreement asking for voluntary emissions reductions by most of the nations of the world. The president announced the withdrawal on the first day that the United States could announce its legal withdrawal from this. The withdrawal will not take effect for one year, so not until November 4th, 2020, the day after the presidential election. Um, So under any circumstance, the U.S. will be withdrawn from this treaty for at least some period of time. Presumably a new president could put us back into it, but it will, we will be withdrawn for a bit. Emily, um, it's kind of not a surprise. I mean, the president has rolled back emission standards for cars. He's loosened standards for coal plants. He's gutted subsidies for renewables. You name it. He has done, done it. If when it comes to, when (laughs) it comes to weakening protections for the climate and undermining, uh, attempts to decrease emissions. So is this actually important that he's doing this? Yeah, it's important. This is the worldwide climate agreement that's supposed to get countries moving towards saving the planet. You know, the saving grace of this is that he had to give a year's notice. And so this will actually go into effect the day after the 2020 elections, which means that if Trump is not reelected, it could effectively be stopped. And it puts into stark relief the choice that voters will be facing and, and making in November about the United States and whether it's going to be responsible in its reaction to climate change and whether it's going to join with other nations in this like incredibly crucial collective enterprise. So when it comes to something like this, though, so the Paris Accord, I think there there are two different kinds of critiques of it. One, the critique from the right is this just really hurts American interests and hurts American competitiveness and it's it's other countries taking advantage of America and wrecking our economic growth. That's the one side. And from the left, it's this is a very, this is weak tea. It's a voluntary set of goals. It's not, there are no requirements. Why, why does it even matter? Because no one even has to hit it. What, why, why is it important despite those two critiques? 
Well, you just got to start somewhere. I mean, collective action has to collect and cohere around something. And um, once you once you build the formulations and the and the structure for agreement, then you can ratchet things up. We've also seen since the original agreement, um, the targets, which I believe are two degrees Celsius, um, we're now at one degree increase, and in some parts of the, the world, I think in a quarter of the globe, it's already one point five. The problem has gotten worse by the targets of the original measurement. So that's a problem and creates that sense of urgency. But if you don't have uh, something that gets everybody around the table and works towards these goals, even if they're somewhat voluntary, then you have to kind of start all over again, which is what we're talking about. If there's a new president, they would have to start all over again, which I would just interject quickly in terms of a turnout mechanism for younger voters in particular for whom this is a voting issue which again gives a democratic candidate some wiggle room because if those if they're going to turn out because you can make the case look climate's really going to be screwed if you don't elect a democrat then that gives a democratic presidential candidate some wiggle room with other parts uh, of the constituency that they need to work harder although on. i would i would argue the the counter of that john which is that the the conservative position and the trump position has kind of morphed in a subtle way it's no it's not really so much this isn't happening the the full-throated denials the kind of uh, bogus denials which they've pushed forward have vanished and instead it's moved into what i think is a more effective set of messaging which is you just say green new deal aoc socialists wreck the economy, crush jobs. And that, I don't know that's more effective as a turnout mechanism for the right than what you just described is for young voters on the left. But it is a, I think it's a more, I think it's a better argument because it's more realistic and it does have a an actual, it almost puts numbers on something. It says, oh yeah, these guys are trying to destroy uh, this strong industry that we have and take away American jobs and take away jobs in timber and in fracking and in petro It's so industry. short-sighted, but, though. Oh, I can't help. Yes, I have to interrupt yes, you. I yes. mean, come on. I'm, I like, don't endorse right? this. Yes, go ahead. No, Sing I it, know. Sister. I just like can't stand to keep hearing it for so long. We already, even in our denialist or skeptic economy, we already are employing twice as many people in solar as we are in coal in the United States. Meanwhile, though, we're letting China just like have this market. So this is from a John Kerry and Chuck Hagel op-ed. From for every dollar the United States invests in renewable energy, China is putting in three. We're just like seeding this whole territory, even as the cost of producing air and wind is coming way, way down. And that kind of renewable energy is competitive. Like there is a huge economic yes. opportunity yes. here. And the, yeah. If you think about it as an economic question, not simply just, oh, green, cushy, green silliness. It's it's actually economics. This is where jobs are. This is where economic opportunity is. This is where growth is. And it's it's demoralizing as hell that that these people who claim to believe in economic growth and claim to believe in innovation in the future are just throwing it away. It's maddening. It seems to me if you have younger voters who care about this issue and are going to vote on it uh, and be propelled by it, then what it does is it frees you up to make precisely the case you're making and that Walmart is making and that all of these individual companies that have joined together to push behavior that is renewable and that supports wind and solar – that you can make that case to uh, to save suburban voters. You can say, look, this isn't about um, this is about economic the economic future and development of the United States. It's not just about these you know fuzzy lefty ideas. These are smart economic decisions to make about America's future. It seems to me you have lots of free market private enterprise people who would uh, who would join you and who would buy that argument. This is going to be an incredibly negative election. So I think. There's going to be so much ugly, uglier things said about Democrats to caricature them uh, or characterize them that that climate actually probably wouldn't, you know, they'll do uglier things first. Yeah, but then we also have to take into account the disproportionate political power of the people who could be losers from this economic shift. Right. So it's the manufacturing center. It's people in Kentucky and West Virginia and Pennsylvania who are still involved in coal mining and other extractive industries. And those folks really matter in the election. College. I, what I don't understand right. is like the people. And where well, what, the issue is a proxy for what they. Yeah, think. but you yes. know the, the people who the people who live in Miami. Like if you think about Florida, that's a big state. People who live in Georgia, Florida is is a state that may well not exist in its substantive form in fifty years. If you live in Miami, you own any real estate in Miami, and you're not incredibly concerned about climate change. You're a fucking moron. 
and so I, I just don't, I don't understand. If you own any beachfront, I don't subscribe to that any beachfront property. If you own any beachfront property on the East Coast, if you're on coastal North Carolina and you're a voter, if you're on coastal Georgia and you're a voter, if you're anywhere in coastal Florida and you're a voter, and you're not thinking about that as an issue, like you're just wanting to give away your most, you know, valuable asset and the thing that you know brings you probably the most joy. So I don't, I find it. Yes, you should. Yes, the Kentucky voter, the West Virginia voter, the Pennsylvania voter who works in coal country. Sure, they're valuable. But these these there are tons of people who are going to be affected by climate change. You know, if you're in Colorado and there are droughts that are hitting you and that you cannot farm the way you want to farm it, people need to be attuned to their economic interests and be think, oh, yeah, that's actually an important voting issue for me, which they're not right now. Right. But it. But if we look at those six states we talked about earlier, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, only Florida and North Carolina fit in the basket that you're talking about. So if you were having to make a calculation of what your overall position was that swept in as many states as possible, I think you would have you would have to be more worried about how it, that, that message would be received in manufacturing-centered states more than coastal states, particularly if you're a Democrat in your coastal at least I think this, you know, your coastal votes may already be with you in Florida. All right. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting in your beachfront property on the deck watching the waves lap up ever closer, ever closer, <laughs> ever closer. What are you going to be chattering about as you drink an elegiac cocktail? Emily Bazelon. I am so distressed this week about a story that colleges and universities have been buying the names of high school kids who take the SAT and don't look like strong enough candidates to get into said colleges and universities, but the colleges and universities reach out to them and market to them and make it seem like, hey, you have a good shot. And then they reject them. What is the point of doing this? The schools do it to drive up their selectivity rates because that helps them in the horrible but powerful U.S. News and World Report rankings that continue to sort of stalk us like a terrible ghost of U.S. News and World Report, which otherwise I feel like doesn't even exist anymore. Who knows? And then there's also the cost to these students and their families, the psychological toll of applying to schools that actually uh, you don't have a shot at getting into, and then the actual cost of paying the application fees. The whole thing Mm. just makes me ill, and it is just one more nail in the coffin for the SAT, which I would just uh, be so happy if we got rid of it forever. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is uh, kind of twofold, but um, I was reading a piece about going to Mars uh, in the independent about how long it would take and all the things that would have to be taken into account. And it it seemed completely obvious after reading it, but wasn't to me in my initial thinking about it that, you know, three years on a, on a ship to Mars and back, you're going to have to handle all your own surgery and, and like even small, like kidney stones could become fatal in that environment um, where you're basically in a tin can for three years. And, and so anyway, I tweeted that, not incredible revelation, but anyway. And Paul McGrain said it reminded him of a story that you guys probably already know, but that I don't think I knew, but which is about the Soviet uh, doctor who was in uh, Antarctica oh, yeah. in ni- 1960, Leonid uh, Rogozov, um, who had to perform his own appendectomy because there was there was not a doctor or even a medical station for a thousand miles, and the snow was blowing and... Um, Anyway, so basically, he had to um, use some Novocaine and a mirror and two friends, one of whom was, I think, a meteorologist and the other was a driver, to basically help him do surgery on himself. And when he opened up his stomach, he found that, in fact, the the appendix was about ready to blow. Um, So he probably would have had one more day before it would have blown, and then I think it would have been impossible. That's a pretty amazing thing to do surgery on yourself and be successful, which he was. Um, he had apparently to stop um, at various intervals while he was doing it because he got a little woozy, which, you know, fair enough. But that was an amazing story of, um, of the human spirit. Yeah. That's my chatter. My chatter. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll double dip a little bit. First of all, um, I want to 
alert everyone, if you are a Philip Pullman fan, you have probably heard that His Dark Materials is now a TV show from the BBC and HBO. So HBO started airing His Dark Materials, which is Pullman's trilogy. Amazing. My favorite books. I've talked about them before on the show. And uh, the HBO series, there's an eight-episode start, which is just the first book, The Golden Compass. And I, uh, the first episode ran this week. It's great. And it's apparently, from those who've seen the whole thing, it's going to be better so check that out but also do you promise because i am afraid to watch this i'm so attached to these books i never watched the movie and i'm only going to watch it if you really guarantee it's good it's It's good it's really good i is it they're not as good as the books i mean the books are unassailably great but it is much much better than the movie and it's so far it seems good i'll 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 watch a little further and let you know also, <laughs> his Pullman. Ha- I feel like you took a little back on that. Well, one. it's it's too soon to tell. It's only you know the first hour of eight have I watched. Uh, but also right, Pullman's right. second book in his second trilogy. So he's writing it. He wrote the His Dark Materials trilogy, and now he's writing written writing a second trilogy called The Book of Dust. The first book came out a couple of years ago. It was, was called bad. La Belle Sauvage, and was terrible. And now the second book. Oh, I didn't think it was terrible. Oof. No, it's, it's bad, John. It's really bad. Like, so unworthy of I the first it. trilogy. Well, that's different. Uh. It's different whether it's unworthy of the trilogy or well, just objectively right. bad. I, anyway, the second book, The Secret Commonwealth, just came out. I, I think it's coming out. I don't know. I got my hands on an early copy, maybe. And it's really good. It's not quite as good as his Dark Materials, but it's really good. It, it catches Lyra at a wonderful moment. It returns to Lyra. It catches Lyra at, at 20 or uh, 19 maybe, and she's a college student, and then all sorts of events from her past are coming back to to uh, interrupt her, and it's 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 really interesting on her relationship with Pan now that they're adults, and uh, mm. it's it's got a lot of the That's adventure. Her demon, her demon, demon, her demon. Pan is her demon. Demon, demon. it's demon. Um, so it's uh, it's good. So check it out. The other. Um, thing it's just a little bit of self-involved chatter which is i don't think i've talked about this before but i am looking for my next thing uh so i'm going to be leaving atlas obscura we're hunting for a new ceo uh if you know a great person who could be ceo of atlas obscura let me know um but i'm going to be uh handing the reins off there and doing something new and i'm starting to think about what that would be and maybe you have a great idea for me the only constraint is that it has to be something I can do from Washington primarily. So uh, if you have a great idea, please just uh, send me an email at uh, the GabFest email address, gabfestatslate.com, and I would love to uh, hear your wonderful idea. Listeners, you sent us excellent chatters yourselves this week. Please keep them coming. Tweet to us at Slate GabFest with your wonderful article or piece of culture or song or historical episode whatever it is. And this week, it was a very David Plotzy kind of listener chatter that I'm going to call out. It's from at Shaw of Shaw. And it's uh, a story that ran in CNN, but probably ran elsewhere, about a boat that was trapped above Niagara Falls 100 years ago in 1918, 101 years ago. Uh, it was a kind of an iron boat that that in the midst of a storm got trapped. They had to rescue the two people who were on the boat. And the boat got lodged on a rock about 600 feet above the falls. And it just stuck there. It was there for 100 years. And this week, it it moved. It hadn't moved in 100 years. And it, it dislodged and moved around. And it's now come to a different resting place above the falls. I think it's above the falls. No one wants to mess with it. No one wants to get near it because it's too risky. But I love the idea that this thing is just sitting there for 100 years and then decides because there's a particularly violent storm, a lot of wind and rain. And it's like, all right, I'm going to move now. So nice story from Shaw of Shaw. That is our. Sh- it's a metaphor for our times. It is. It's yes. a serious anthropomorphizing of a rock that you just did. Boat. It's going to move. A boat. Boat. Whatever. Boat. Yeah. <laughs> well, we give them we give them names. And actually, the Philip Pullman book, the last one was called La Belle Sauvage, which is the name of the boat. It was a book about a boat. And as we agreed, it was, it was a terrible. It was book. a terrible book. <laughs> <laughs> that is our show for today. The Political Gaffest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. Alan Peng in New York. Ryan McAvoy in New Haven. And Melissa Kaplan here in D.C. helped 
engineer the show. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us and come to our live show on December 18th at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California. Annual conundrum show with Adam Savage as our guest host. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets for Emily Bazelon, mother, mother of a city council member, and Alder in New Haven, and John Dickerson, father of dragons. I'm David Blotz. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I don't know what age you are, Slate Plus. I'm guessing you're more likely to be in the millennial or Gen X age bracket. So you're probably in the kind of 30 to 55 age bracket, judging, judging just a guess, because also that's where John and Emily and I all are. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're 16 years old. Maybe you're 73 years old. I don't know. But uh, this week, we had this very funny generational meme that is now spread around. OK, Boomer. Why is OK? What is OK, Boomer, Emily? Why is it? Why is it? Uh, and why did it catch the imagination? Oh, no, you're asking me. Or I, I can explain like I was the last to hear about this. Okay. Yeah, you explain. <laughs> OK, so essentially, it's it is a it's a, a what lovely kind of dismissive tossed off phrase that that uh, Gen Z folks, the. I guess, I don't know where you define gems. It's like sort of sub 25, maybe sub 30 folks are saying as a way to deflate the smugness of the old. And it's aimed at boomers, but I guess it also probably encompasses us. We are sub boomers. And the notion is these these older people are often telling the young, oh, to, to learn something, stop being so, stop being so sensitive, stop being so woke, stop stop doing, uh, you know, stop criticizing us, stop stop talking about subjects you don't understand, you're too young to understand. And this is a quick, excellent little dismissive phrase that popped up as a way to to, to give the back of the hand to old people. And it, it's just caught on very quickly. I'm sure it will explode and die very quickly, too, in the way that these things do. But everyone all of a sudden was talking about it and enjoying it. And even you got this great spectacle of baby boomers, baby boomers saying it was ageism and that saying this to somebody was a, was a form of age, age based harassment and you should file an EEOC, EEOC complaint about it. Uh, so John, then is this a, you know, why, why, why are people, why do people get agitated about it and, and fun have, why are they having such fun with it? Well, because we are in an age of we are in an age of constant agitation. And by the way, one of the generational claims against the boomers was that they were so self-involved uh, that they couldn't get past themselves uh, and see anything larger, which is what uh, kept them in gated communities walled off from the greatest generation. And so some people see in their thin-skinned reaction to OK Boomer, evidence of the original claims against boomers, which is that they were totally self-obsessed and that basically they should uh, relax and recognize that this is basically just a new form of the sort of get off my lawn um, critique, which is, you know, basically you're like a cranky old and cranky olds are sometimes out of touch. A new New Zealand lawmaker, Chloe Swarbrick, was giving a speech about climate uh, change and um, and a climate crisis bill and it was heckled by an older member of parliament and she and she deployed this OK Boomer and then kept talking. Um, but she did it in a and kind of unfazed, you know, she just like dropped it in and then moved on. It was uh, it was well deployed because now the problem is it's become such a thing that to successfully deploy it has to actually, it seems to me, account for all of the irony re required by the fact that it's now been discussed so much. I mean, just if you want to be really clever. Is there any legitimacy to generational warfare? I mean, I'm generally... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.